Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Our hope is that this sermon will instill you with a profound sense of God's love and that you might receive and reflect His glory to your community. From the epistle of St. James, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning, everybody. Here's a question for you to consider as we roll into our fourth sermon out of James. Here's the question. What do the things that you value tell you about you? What do the things that you crave, that you strive for, that you value, how do those, what do those things tell you about you? Another way to see it would be to, how do the things that you value diagnose the condition and really what's inside of your heart? And the reason I'm asking you that is because James, over these six weeks of our sermon on James, is describing not how we become Christians, but rather how we live once we've become Christians. In other words, James is not telling us how to become a Christian. He's saying that once we have become a Christian, how do we live? It's a hugely, it's a big difference, right? And what James is driving at the entire series, the entire five chapters, is that how you live, how you live and how you see the world should literally flow out of a converted heart. In other words, In other words, Jesus changes us not from the outside in, but from the inside out. You can't earn your way, but thanks be to God, you don't have to. Jesus changes us. And back uh, two weeks ago, we read a a good metaphor for this idea that James gives us in chapter 3. He says rhetorically, does a spring, you, (laughs) does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Or can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs. All right, I don't grow oranges and stuff, but what's the point? And the point is simply this, that James is saying that inside of each of us is our heart, our core. You know, the word heart in Greek, cardia, means your guts. What's your, what's your, what's your, what are you all about, man? What's your substance? What's your, what, what, what makes you you? And that what your substance flows out of you. And Father Gritter last week talked about one way you know what's in there, in your core, is by the words that you speak, because the words that you speak give evidence to what's really inside. Today, we're going to look at the same question. How do you know what's, what's in your core, in your heart, in your guts? But we're going to look at a different angle, and that is our passions. How do our passions diagnose what's really inside of our hearts? And I've got three points today. Uh, First thing is the the diagnostic value of our passions. What do they tell us about ourselves? The diagnostic value of our passions is point one. Point two, how our passions deceive us. And then point three, what's the fix? What's the solution? So, what, how, do we, how do our passions diagnose what's in our heart, first thing? Second thing, how do our passions deceive us? And then finally, what's the solution? So, you ready? I know it's a rainy day and you guys are sleepy, and I am too, but we're going to do our best here today. Um, so, point one is the diagnostic value of our passions. Remember, James is all about 
helping us see ourselves clearly. And he says today in verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Okay? Then he says, you ask and you do not receive. Here's the key verse. Because you ask wrongly to spend on, listen, your passions. Now, what does that mean? Well, first thing I got to do is dig into the Greek, right? And the Greek word for passion is the word hedone. And it's where the word hedonism comes from. And, and most people, if you think of passions, what do you think of? You think of, you, think of, uh, you know, things you wouldn't do in church, right? <laughs> you think of Hugh Hefner. You think of, you get the idea, right? Wolf of Wall Street kind of stuff. Um, but, but hedone, the Greek word there, and the word hedonism comes from the same root, but, but the word hedone has actually got a broader and a little more mischievous meaning, and it's this, that hedone just means something that you enjoy. It means something that you take delight in. It means something that you do because it's fun. So let me just ask you that. It's just an, an honest question. What is something that you delight in doing or delight in being around or delight in having? Maybe you delight in working hard. Bingo. That's mine. Maybe you delight in working out. That one I'll wear. Maybe you love college football. Ding. Maybe you like single malt scotch. Ding. (laughs) Maybe you like a good book, okay? Or you're like your, you, you enjoy your kids or your spouse. Or whatever, man. It doesn't really matter. The point is, the point I want you to see here, which is where it gets tricky, is that these passions that, that James is talking about aren't necessarily bad things. And here's the rub. The problem, listen, is when our, our passions, the good things, take the place of God. There's an old saying Um, that if you want to know where a man's heart is, look at his checkbook. Now these days, I mean, who writes checks anymore, right? You want to look at your, you want to look, know where your heart is, you know, just hack Wells Fargo. Somebody just did that recently, right? And look at your online statements. But here's the thing, if someone were to look at your Amex or your credit card or your bank account or even your checkbook, if you still use one, what would they find? If someone looked at your checkbook and your credit card statements or whatever, what would they find there? It, it tells you an awful lot about you and certainly me. And they'd probably find things that people just buy. Food, check. Clothing, check. Books for kids for school, check. Again, these passions are not necessarily bad things. And that's actually the problem. <laughs> They're not obvious. But the problem, here's the point, is that these passions friends, they consume our focus. And that's the point. The point I'm trying to make here is that where you spend your money shows where your passions lie. They show where your heart is. They show what you value. They show you your God. And that's the value, the diagnostic value of your passions, and God knows mine, is that they lay bare the things that you really rely on in this world. They lay bare the gods that you and I worship. And so point two then is, well, how do these, how do these passions hurt us? This is interesting. Last, just last week, Father Gritter um, made, what I, which I thought was actually a very 
uh, insightful observation about language. It was the text earlier in James. And he said something interesting. He said that words, when they are spoken, they, they have a creative value, don't they? And that when we are kids, for example, words, when they are spoken, they affect us, right? In other words, if, 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 a, if the kids teased you for being fat, you spend your whole life worrying about your body. Kids are like sometimes pretty horrible people, aren't they? If you grow up in a dysfunctional family, for example, you spend your entire life trying to have the perfect family where everybody matches on Easter Sunday, right? If you grew up poor, if the kids tease you about it, you grow up consumed with making money and proving your worth. You see my point? Our passions are not just the things that we like. Our passions are the things that we do to cover up our insecurity. I'm going to tell you a story about my dad. My dad, his name is Tony Anthony Rodriguez. Great guy. Love my father. We've got a very close relationship. My, dad was, my father was born in Yonkers, New York. So was I, incidentally. Um, my dad didn't have any money growing up. His father, my grandfather, was a guy named Joe. He came over from the Basque region of Spain. Joe was a, I knew him. He was a very quiet guy. He didn't say much, mainly because he didn't speak much English. But um, he, Joe settled in Yonkers with his with his five children, he worked for Con Ed as a lineman, running electrical lines in Yonkers, New York. And my father, whom I love very much and I admire, he was determined to prove himself. My dad was determined that he could get his way out of Yonkers, New York. And so as a result, there's no money. So he worked during the day at a liquor store, and at night he went to Manhattan College, and then he went on later on to get a CPA. And then eventually, as time rolled on, my dad, we moved to Fairfield, Connecticut. My father went up in the, in the ranks. Finally, at the point of his retirement at 48 years old, he was the senior vice, vice president for a division at SmithKline Corporation, a big pharmaceutical company outside Philadelphia. My point is that my dad was a self-made guy. And I actually really admire him for that thing. And the fact that he's a self-made guy is incidentally also why he has never given me any money. <laughs> and he said this to me once. He said, son, it's my money. If you, I'll bail you out, but I'm not giving it to you. And he was right. And he said to me something, this is sort of a sideways. He said, he said, you know, if you make your own money, you're never beholden to anyone. Anyway, my parents divorced when I was 18 years old. And, and it's, the strange thing was, my parents didn't fight. They didn't argue. Life in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where we lived, was actually really good. We had a nice house, a dog. My sister and my brother lived there. The problem was that, the problem was that my parents had just sort, of, just sort of drifted apart, you know? You ever seen that happen? And, and after my parents split up, I remember my dad and I sitting on the back porch, and he said to me, he goes, you know, he says, all I, wanted, all I wanted to do, all I really wanted to do <laughs> was give my family a better life than I had. And in so doing it, I've undermined the very thing I was trying to fix. He was trying to do the right thing, and he did. Actually, my father was a great dad. But the problem was, and he would admit this now, that by trying to control his life so much and trying to control it and cover up his insecurity of being raised in Yonkers, New York, the son of an immigrant, by trying to control it, he actually lost it. And that's the point I want you to see. It's 
so sneaky and it's so real. That our passions, friends, they blind us. And the reason that our passions blind us is because they actually, they fill us with, they fill us with pride. Now, my dad, Tony, is not an arrogant guy by any stretch. My father's anything but arrogant. But what I mean by that is that pride is when we try to control things, we try to fix things and rather than being faithful. Pride says, I'm in charge. In fact, pride is when you put your own effort, what you value, in the place of God. And that's why James says today that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Ever heard that before? Anybody have that on your refrigerator magnet at home? Probably not, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, I always misunderstood that text. I always sort of read that as sort of like, you know, God's having a bad day because I thought felt pretty good about myself. And so as a consequence, he unleashed his fury with thunderstorms or, you know, a Golden Girls episode on TV when it should have been a Penn State game that got rained out. You get my idea. <laughs> but the thing is, this is the interesting fact, that God, listen, God opposes the proud not because he doesn't love us, but because he does. God opposes the proud. God opposes you and your pride, not because he doesn't love you, but because he does love you. I mean, and if you think about it with this whole thread of passions, think of the passions that are a result of your own insecurities, the things that people made fun of you from when you were a kid or whatever, the things that your hang-ups, being fat or being poor or being stupid or being whatever, man, fill in the blank, it doesn't matter. And you work your whole life trying to overcome that insecurity, trying to prove yourself, trying to fill that hole. <laughs> Does it ever really work? No. And not only that, striving for those things, being prideful, trying to solve that problem on your own actually hurts us, kind of like my dad inadvertently, what he did in his striving to help the family and actually doing the opposite. And that's why God opposes our pride, our desire to prove ourselves, precisely because he loves us, and because God knows that when we try to fix that problem on our own, these solutions will always fail us. Always. You want to feel loved and respected by having a ton of money? That's a big one for a lot of people, and it always almost was for me, I'll be honest. But if that's how you're going to prove yourself and your self-worth, somebody, friends, will always have more than you. Always. I knew a guy who was raised in nothing outside Philadelphia. He went to Wharton, which is a prestigious school, the business school at Penn, went to Wharton, got his MBA, and then went to work on Wall Street 20 years ago, working on Wall Street, had a team of guys working for him, and he moved into New Jersey with his wife and his two kids, and he bought a house for $10 million, which back then was, I guess, still is a lot of money. And he felt great. He was accomplished. He was, he was proud of himself. His Dad was proud of him. Hey, way to go, Bob! It's not his real name. Everything was great. Bob was at the top of his game until somebody that worked for him went down the street and bought a house for $12 million. Or maybe you want love and respect by having the smartest, hardest working, most polite kids on the planet. 
guess what? Someone else will beat you to it. Maybe you want to be the loved and respected by being the most fit or the most social or the most whatever. Friends, somebody will always have more. Maybe you want to, you want to prove yourself by being a faithful priest. Guess what? In a hundred years from now, no one's going to know anything but me aside from the name carved on a piece of marble. Friends, guess what? These things don't solve the problem. And this is the reason why God opposes the proud, because he opposes the things which we base our self-worth on, because they fail us. God opposes the proud, not because he doesn't love you, but because he does love you. And he wants to save you and me from these false gods that we unwittingly put in his place, that we, you might even say, accidentally worship. And so our passions, they show us what our hearts really value and they fail us. So then what's the solution? Well, James thankfully actually tells us that too. Look at verse 7. And if you go read it again, this actually flows logically, and that's why I'm doing it this way. James says in verse, chap, verse 7, he says, you want the fix? Here it is. Submit yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James doesn't say work harder. James doesn't say pray more. He doesn't say go to church more often. It's not what he says. He says, James says, submit yourself to God, and the devil will flee from you. Do you hear that? Submitting yourself to God and he will flee from you means the way you solve the problem is by not solving the problem. <laughs> the way you solve the problem is by submitting yourself to God and letting him solve the problem. It is the complete opposite of pride. Do you see it? George MacDonald, who was a famous 19th century philosopher, once said that the one principle of hell is I am my own. But to submit to God means to make him your priority. To reorient your life towards him. James says it in verse 8. Submit yourself to God, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. See, friends, James is so valuable. If you're willing to stop and think and do a little soul searching, do a gut check. Our passions show us what we really value, and the danger is they're usually not bad things. Our words, our passions show us the true nature of our heart. But friends, God is the only one that can really solve the problem. He will change you. He will draw near to you. He will turn your, to use the metaphor, he will change your heart from salt water to fresh. But, James says, you must submit to him first. Put him in the first spot. Make him your passion. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you. We thank you for the blessings of this life, the things that we love. We thank you for our passions. But help us never to forget and confuse them with you. And when we do, and we will, remind us that the only that only you can make us whole. Only you can fill that spot. Only you can cover that insecurity. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. 
To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.